0: This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Cardiovascular disease remains the leading cause of death for individuals in the U.S. Many assume this is primarily a disease of men but it also continues to be a leading cause of mortality in women, accounting for one of every three female deaths. There's also evidence that the symptoms of cardiovascular disease may be somewhat different than in males. As a result, women are often given a different evaluation and may receive different treatment than males. To help us sort this out is Dr. Sharon Hayes, a cardiologist and specialist in women's health from the male clinic. Sharon, thank you so much for joining us today and uh, discussing this very interesting topic.
1: Well, I'm thrilled to be here. I mean, Heart Month is February and March is Women's Health Month. So it makes sense to be focusing on some of these things where the science is actually evolving in a good way as we are learning more and recognizing perhaps what we didn't know.
0: Well, as I mentioned, we tend to think of heart disease is primarily a disease of men, but that's not really true, is it? How common is it in women?
1: Well, it is the number one killer of women and men. And I think that's something that women population has more knowledge than they did 10 or 15 years ago. But if you ask her what's the number one killer of women, she says breast cancer, right? Mm -hmm, right. And breast cancer isn't even the number one cancer killer, it's lung cancer for women. So I think that it has been de-emphasized as an important women's health issue. And one of the things I say, if it's the number one killer, it should be the number one women's health issue. I think we can't blame women for not knowing this. A lot of physicians don't recognize this and part of it is because of some decisions and opinions made back in the 60s and 70s where we thought all the research that we did on heart disease could just be applied to women that we shouldn't include women in clinical trials because gosh they're complicated they've got reproductive cycles and and that would mess things up in terms of a research so reproductive age and older women in particular, elderly women, are very understudied. And we're playing catch-up now as we try to figure out the symptoms or the conditions that may disproportionately affect women, but for which we still don't have adequate diagnostic tests or treatments because we left them behind. Mm-hmm. So fortunately, there has been much more of a laser focus, but we're playing catch-up.
0: You know, I, I think the idea that this is a male disease comes from the concept that estrogen provides a protective effect for females so how much truth is there to that and do we only need to worry about the postmenopausal female for cardiac disease
1: So it's kind of true, but it's not universal. Where that came from is women on average develop their first manifestation of cardiovascular disease about seven to 10 years later than men. So it's been thought, and probably there is some protective effect from the estrogen, but it's not like a light switch that the woman, as soon as she becomes postmenopausal, she develops heart attack risks or whatever. It is very gradual. The other thing is there are several conditions which completely negate any benefit or protection, such as women with diabetes, women who smoke, they have no advantage, those behaviors or risk factors. So I think it's important that we take it into effect, but we've learned now that we don't assume that that premenopausal woman, we don't have to worry about her. Because in fact, one of the points and I think the focus on younger women is really important is because women under the age of 60 are the only gender and age group for which cardiovascular disease deaths are actually have been going up over the past decade we have been incredibly successful for decades in dropping deaths from cardiovascular disease in men and about eight or nine years ago the curve started really shifting down for women in general but if you look at that younger age there's a number of complex reasons for that probably cardiovascular disease in premenopausal women is different but i think why it's important to speak to the audience today is if we have had the wrong mindset about those women are risk-free or we don't need to worry about them perhaps we need to learn a few things about what we should be worrying about
0: hmm how about risk factors? Are there gender differences there? Do females have specific risk factors that maybe males don't have?
1: Well, they do. So I think from a risk factor standpoint, I like to talk about sex differences in risk factors, as well as gender differences in risk factors. And they overlap. Remember, sex is biological sex. So that's being a man or a woman, female, biologically male or female. But there are other gendered differences in risk factors and behaviors that actually impact cardiovascular disease risk. So the risk factors are the same for the most part, but they may be have different prevalences in men and women, and they may impart a greater or lesser absolute risk. For instance, smoking in women is a little less frequent than it is in men, but per dose or pack or per cigarette, the absolute risk of developing cardiovascular disease in women is greater than it is in men. Hypertension similarly, and we, we can talk later about the sex differences in the way the blood vessels and the ventricles respond to high blood pressure, but it's different between men and women. and has important implications. And then there are risk factors that are disproportionate to women, such as autoimmune conditions. So inflammatory conditions, chest irradiation for breast cancer, And then there are risk factors that are unique to women. And that would be those risk factors associated with pregnancy and the hormonal transitions. So it is a risk factor for future cardiovascular disease to have a pregnancy affected by diabetes, hypertension, or preeclampsia or preterm birth. These are things that in our current cardiovascular guidelines, it is recommended we be asking our patients around that time so that it can help inform risk intervention or risk prevention, but it's still done in the majority, in the minority of practices. I would ask those, do you have a routine form where you ask how many pregnancies, how many term pregnancies, how many were affected by diabetes, hypertension, or preeclampsia, or had a preterm birth? Most practices do not do that yet. And I think those are the things we really want to focus on.
0: You mentioned hypertension. So before we get into cardiac disease, let's talk a little bit about vascular disease. Are, are there sex differences in some of the vascular things, the arterial disease, hypertension, peripheral arterial disease, aneurysm, no. uh, are there other differences there?
1: For peripheral arterial disease and aneurysm, particularly abdominal aortic aneurysm, those have similar risk factors to coronary heart disease and similar to coronary heart disease, they are less prevalent in women and tend to have that seven to 10 year lag. On the other hand, hypertension, which has lower prevalence up until about age 60 in women compared to men, then women overtake it. And at all ages, women's hypertension is less likely to be controlled. So that's why hypertension is important. And other conditions that may be important in terms of stroke. So hypertension has a direct correlation with stroke and most women are more worried about devastating stroke than heart attack, honestly, when we look at patient preferences, and there's some conditions like fibromuscular dysplasia that are less common, but are actually probably more common than what you learned in medical school that are 90 plus percent women that make women at increased risk for dissection or aneurysm formation.
0: Now, for cardiac disease, before we get into um, ischemic disease, how about the non-coronary heart disease that doesn't have to be non-coronary, but uh, arrhythmias, yeah. uh, valvular disease, congestive heart failure, cardiomyopathy, sex differences there?
1: There are, there, there's, for instance, in heart failure or cardiomyopathy, there are differences in, in underlying cause. So men are much more likely to have an ischemic cause and women are much more likely to have a non-ischemic cause of their dilated cardiomyopathy. And we know that there are some differences in how we should treat them or making decisions about ICD. So it's important to know that. Women are much more likely to have heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And we can circle back to that. That tends to be a problem of older women, but It is a problem for which we still do not really have any drugs approved for treatment of it, considering how much progress we've made in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. In terms of arrhythmias, they tend to be similar in prevalence, but women's arrhythmias, particularly in younger women, tend not to be diagnosed there's been several studies that shown that women who present with palpitations or tachycardia reporting to their doctor, they're less likely to get the kinds of tests to diagnose it and or told that they are having panic attacks or it's menopause. So they don't get the uh, evaluation in the first place. And several have shown that even if they're diagnosed with an SVT, they've tried multiple more drugs between before they are offered an ablation compared to men. So again, I think sometimes in our minds, unconsciously, we don't think of that woman as having heart disease and we may not be as aggressive. But there are subtle differences in the proportion of different types of arrhythmias. But for instance, long QT syndrome, more common in women. So women's QT interval, which if it gets inappropriately lengthened because of drugs or some congenital abnormality, can cause torsade de point and sudden cardiac death. Women's QT interval, boys and girls have the same length QT interval. At puberty, either men stay the same and women's lengthen, and that stays the way the rest of the life. So if the average woman has a longer QT, it doesn't take much more, the same dose of a drug that might lengthen QT like antibiotics and others. So there's differences in in that as well.
0: You've talked a little bit about sex differences in symptoms. Um, Let's focus on symptoms of ischemic heart disease. That's often when patients come to see us as primary providers or the urgent care center or emergency department. So how do the differences there show up in terms of cardiac ischemia?
1: Yeah, that's a great question because there's been a lot written about it. And some people would love to say, oh, the reason women have been underdiagnosed or perhaps have a delayed diagnosis is because their symptoms are completely different. That's actually not the case. Where there have been systematic looks at symptoms, the overlap between men and women is 90 plus percent. In fact, about 85 plus percent of men and women presenting with a heart attack have chest pain. Some of it, there are, you know, women are more likely to have nausea and vomiting, more likely to have chest pain in other parts of their body, and more likely to have shortness of breath than men when having a heart attack. But even national expert panels have said, we can't say there are sex differences really in that. There are, however, sex differences, or maybe gender differences, in how women describe their symptoms. And when they present with them, on average, whether it's in a primary care office for just general care, or when they present with having a heart attack, women have more symptoms, more numbers. So the man might come in and saying, I'm having chest pain and it's going down my arm. And the woman might say, I threw up. I thought I had stomach flu. I've got this pain between my shoulder blades. And it might not be until you ask her, do you have chest pain? She said, well, yeah, a little of that, but I, you know. And so it legitimately means that when we're talking about it, we need to look for the pattern and the number of it. More importantly, I have had women in my practice who I've been able to read the notes and the physician described the symptoms like, Elephant sitting on my chest, radiating down my left arm. She got sweaty and threw up, and they start working her up for a panic attack or GI flu because she's 40 and looks healthy and ran 5K yesterday. So I think we also have to look at those classic symptoms. And if they fit, even for the woman who does not look like a heart attack happening, that we address it. And if we think about more chronic ischemic heart disease, so that individual who's developing stable angina, Women are actually more likely to report fatigue and dyspnea rather than chest pain and are more likely to have mental stress-induced chest pain than the classic exertional chest pain. I was certainly taught it was kind of like if you didn't get it when you walked up a hill or on a treadmill, it wasn't probably your heart. We now know that's not true. And women may have significant coronary artery disease, and they mainly get their symptoms when they're upset at work or yelling at their spouse. And so the other thing we're trying to get away from Daryl is the term atypical. Mm
0: -hmm, So
1: if we're implying that typical means only exertional chest pain or implies that men are the typical, so say it's non-cardiac chest pain or it's an ischemic symptom of some type that's not chest pain. I think using our language can help both us and our patients.
0: Well, for some of the reasons you just mentioned, there's pretty good evidence that women get treated differently with uh, cardiac ischemia symptoms, whether it's in the ER or outpatient office or wherever they present, is that correct?
1: It is correct. And it's still present, but it's better. So I've been in this space for more than a couple of decades and it is gratifying that I have patients who are referred to me who say, I just thought it was menopause, I just thought it was indigestion. My doctor me on a treadmill they were concerned about it so clearly we're doing better both the lay public as well as physicians out in practice but i still think partly because of our own unconscious biases we still have a hard time seeing that 35 year old woman as having a heart attack partly because there's still some things that we don't understand about heart attacks particularly in that premenopausal age group and that they are the ones that are most likely to have the non-standard type symptoms that may come on and 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 not just be chest pain mm-hmm. so i think we need to just continue to learn and really listen to women
0: there's a condition i'd like you to speak on just a bit because it, it tends to occur i think more in younger women and it's a condition that uh, very few of us have had any uh, knowledge of or experience and that's the uh, spontaneous coronary artery dissection can you talk a little bit about that
1: I'm happy to, As you know, Daryl, that's my area of research and we have the largest registry in the world of spontaneous coronary artery or SCAD patients here at Mayo Clinic. I will just tell you that this is something that no wonder you haven't heard of it because we cardiologists were even taught up until about a decade ago that it was so rare, we'd probably never see one or two in our practice over a lifetime, one, anything you could do with it. And it mainly happened in pregnant women. Well, wow. We know that that was pretty much all wrong. One, it's more common than we thought. We were missing about 80, 70, 80% of them because of lack of thinking about it, but also just the way we were reading the angiograms. So this is a type of heart attack. I think it's important. It presents like heart attacks and with heart attack symptoms, but the patient doesn't look right. She might be an 18 year old college student. She might be a 40 year old lawyer. She may be fit and doing marathons. So they have very few cardiovascular risk factors. Hypertension is probably about like the average population. They present with heart attack symptoms. And what's different, so the index of suspicion in the emergency department, that's the first barrier these women need to come over versus themselves. You know, I'm having something really bad, but like I'm 30, I can't be having a heart attack. The next is when they the EMTs, who I've had SCAD patients tell me, they got checked out and told, like, your ECG is normal, you don't need to go to the hospital. Unless you want to, we'll take you. Um, who then, four hours later, are rushing in a private car to the hospital with a STEMI. So I think the next barrier is the first responders in the ED who need to get a troponin and an ECG right away, just like we would anybody else who was having those symptoms. And then on the cardiology side, which I realize your audience isn't, but we treat them differently. So we take them to the cath lab. And if we see this dissection, we keep our mitts off. We do not, unless they are clinically unstable, we don't go in and stent it. So this has been what's upturned cardiology because remember that door to balloon time where one of our metrics as a hospital is how fast can you get the patient from the door of your emergency department to having an open artery. So if we diagnose SCAD, we know we can do more harm. The other thing from a primary care audience is, because this happens in women and in often in a peripartum situation, particularly if they're young, we often tell them, we advise them against a future pregnancy, which can have an impact on mental health and future plans. And the burden of being a young woman with a devastating heart attack, um, think having a heart attack, and an emergency cabbage three days after giving birth is substantial. And I think just being aware that one, it's a heart attack, typically happens in younger women often who don't look the part. But we have patients as young as 18 college students spring break at a ski resort up on the hill and was managed to be resuscitated to people in their seventies and eighties, but it peaks around the forties and fifties.
0: Well, we've talked about symptoms. We've talked about evaluation differences. How about treatment differences? Let's finish up with that. Are there differences in the treatment that we should consider for women than men?
1: That's such a great question, because uh, as we started this, we talked about how there was this assumption that if we found an effective treatment for men, we could just transfer that knowledge. We know that for diagnostic tests and for treatments, that actually works most of the time, but not always, and it sometimes actually harms. So I think looking for what is the evidence when I am prescribing this drug, device, or whatever. Has it been tested in women? Is it safe? Is it as effective? Do I need to modify the dose, for instance? Not everything needs to be modified by body size, but some things do. We know that when it's often we cardiologists that are giving the drugs for after PCI, dual antiplatelet therapy, but women for virtually everything that we do or prescribe have higher bleeding risks. That does not mean not giving them the medications, but it does mean weighing that bleeding risk when making those shared decision-making and risk-benefit decisions. Mm -hmm. Obviously, premenopausal women who might be trying or might get pregnant, we have to be cognizant of advising them for the medications so that they let us know for preconception planning or taking them off. I think also being aware of the side effects of some of our most commonly used medications. So a commonly used antihypertensive amlodipine has a known side effect, probably more than the other calcium channel blockers of edema. Women tend to be puffier anyway. I don't use that as a first line drug. A lot of times I've had so many women come back compared to men who say, I've got this edema, it drives me nuts. Now I wanna be on on a diuretic. You know, as we talked about ACE inhibitor cough, it's about 10 times more likely in women than it is in men. It's like 1% in men and 7, 8% in women. So thinking about if the woman reports it, but also maybe thinking about an ARB as a first line drug, they're generic too for hypertension. So I think I use every day sex and gender considerations and how I diagnose and even treat very common conditions like hypertension.
0: Well, Sharon, this has been a great discussion. Can you kind of summarize maybe the advice you've given to us uh, as primary care providers regarding heart disease in women? Maybe two or three points.
1: Yeah. Well, one, have an index of suspicion. Listen to women. One thing that we hear from women is they feel dismissed or unheard. I'm sure that's not you and your practice, but we can all miss the clues. And often these are symptoms that are tougher to diagnose. Flutters, palpitation, stabbing chest pain, but knowing that this individual may be at risk. Properly addressing cardiovascular risk factors. One legacy of thinking that women couldn't get heart disease is we haven't been addressing their risk factors and particularly hypertension, which leads to heart failure in, uh, in elderly women as aggressively enough. So, you know, really focus, are they at goal? The other that we didn't really touch on as much, but in those women who are actually diagnosed with cardiovascular disease, the mental health toll, because baseline women have higher levels of depression and anxiety, and particularly during this pandemic, the mental health concerns of women living with heart disease, particularly these younger women, is very high, and screening for depression, referring as appropriate, is never wrong and will be really, really helpful for these individuals.
0: Well, we've been discussing cardiac disease in women with Dr. Sharon Hayes, a cardiologist and expert in women's health from the Mayo Clinic. Sharon, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. You said things I had not heard before, so I also learned from this.
1: Thanks, Daryl, a lot.
0: You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.